we were right. But us long-haired protesters against the war in Vietnam, we had some degree of power, but when the business community came out and told Nixon to end the war, that's when it ended. Well, maybe that's what's going to happen with the environmental movement. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. The first Earth Day was 52 years ago. And where are we now? Moving from an image of long hair, counterculture, scruffy protesters that the mainstream media painted as on the fringes, today it's about not just standing in the way of blatantly polluting projects, but it's it's being transformed, at least somewhat, into good environmental sense, also being good economic arguments. Hmm. Well, there are indeed hopeful signs of economics and environmental dynamics at last converging. Is it enough? How much are market forces making needed change happen? How much of a difference is the high visibility marketing of, say, individual electric cars really able to make? How much of a difference? Is there now enough urgently needed government intervention to make sure crucial opportunities are not missed in terms of saving the planet? With the catastrophic effects of ignoring global warming so powerful in the 2020s, maybe maybe it's really too late. Are we not really just doomed? Well, our guest today, Bob Keefe, hits the nail on the head relative to political momentum in America over the last century when he says of government, there's nobody they listen to more than business people. Might it be? Is it possible? that there may actually be reason for, dare, dare I say, hope? Or is it just naive Pollyannaism at this late date? A guest writes, the economics of climate change just might be the thing that saves our planet. Again, the economics of climate change. This is sure a different point of view from the doom and gloom pervading the issue now. And of course, it does raise some skepticism. We'll look into that. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive has a new book called Climatonomics, Climatonomics, uh, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. Its author, Bob Keefe, is a former journalist who now serves as executive director of Environmental Entrepreneurs, also known as E2, a national nonpartisan organization dedicated to providing business perspectives on environmental issues. Previously, Keefe spent nearly 25 years as a journalist reporting for the Atlantic Journal-Constitution, the Cox Newspapers Chain, the St. Petersburg Times, and the Austin American Statesman, interesting parts of the country. Well, thanks for being with us, Bob Keefe. Well, Bert, thank you so much. I really appreciate it and for that kind introduction. Well, the culture war in which we now find ourselves had its beginnings, in my mind, during the protests over our war in Vietnam. Mm. Back in the early days, uh, there was the scruffy, long hair, you know, they were called communists uh, protesting the war in Vietnam. But it wasn't until the business community 
got involved politically to pressure the administration that the war really ended. Maybe something like that is happening now. It used to be pictured that on one side were jobs in the economy, but on the other side was protecting the environment. It was pictured as one or the other, and it was far apart. And in the ever more intense culture war of the 2020s, the dug-in right wing still demonizes and scoffs at environmental concerns. Now, it's true that though Americans have come to expect instant gratification, it change just it never happens overnight. It doesn't happen that way. Right. Try as they often successfully do. Is there quantifiable evidence that attitudes are changing, that there's been enough of a tipping point so that politicians are less scared of looking like those other people, those greeny radicals? Right, right. Well, look, I, I think saving the planet isn't just for hippies anymore, Bert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the reason that is the case is because climate change is no longer just an environmental issue. It's no longer just a health issue. It's no longer just a social issue. It's all of those things, of course. But now climate change also is a serious economic issue. Um, and the good thing is that there are two sides to what I like to call the climate nomics coin, Bert. Uh, on the one side, climate change is, frankly, killing our economy. Last year alone, the United States had more than or nearly $150 billion in damage from climate-related disasters, up nearly 50% from the year before. Mm. Uh, that's according to NOAA, not according to me. And, of course, we're talking about wildfires in the West, drought and flooding in the nation's heartland and so many hurricanes on the East Coast that, you know, two years ago we ran out of names for them. But on the other side of the coin, the climate action side of the climate nomics coin, if you will, the smart policies of the past, uh, and po when I say past, I, I say the past 20 years, probably closer to 10 for many of these, but the policies that we've been able to pass around climate action and clean energy have already made solar and wind the cheapest power available, Bert, mm -hmm. any place in the country just about. It's paved the way for electric vehicles that we all see clearly now uh, uh, are on the road to dominating the car market. It's produced innovations uh, ranging from LED lighting to L Energy Star appliances to simply better windows and doors that have helped reduce our monthly electric bills through energy efficiency. And as my organization, E2, has tracked for uh, a decade or so now, Bert, clean, it, it's also created more than 3 million American jobs uh, in clean energy. And that's in every state of the country. Um, but here's what's, here's what's key about that. Those jobs, those 3 million jobs, they aren't just for coastal elites. When we mm -hmm. looked at where those clean energy jobs are, it's almost evenly split, believe it or not, between Republican congressional districts and Democratic congressional districts. Um, so this is something that's happening in our economy uh, and reverberating through our economy from coast to coast and every place in between. Interesting, yeah. And the, the cultural differences between the coasts and the heartland, they've been pretty uh, significant for a while and still 
are having an effect. And we'll we'll talk about that uh, interesting uh, uh, information with regard to jobs being created there, too, uh, as we go on in this discussion. And E2, let's find out about that. There are a great number of environmental organizations, lots and lots of them. Tell us, please, about E2 and its mission. What is unique and effective about your approach? What's E2? Absolutely. Thank you for that. Well, E2 has been around for about 22 years now, uh, and we are a national organization of business leaders, investors, and other professionals who simply care about the economy and care about the environment and realize that the two are not uh, at odds with each other, but in fact, rely on each other. We've got about 11,000 members now uh, who work or do business in every state in America. Uh, And they run the gamut of the economy from certainly some clean energy folks and investors, but also restaurateurs and hoteliers and small business folks uh, from every sector of the economy. The, The thing that they have in common is that they realize that we can't have a good economy without a good environment and vice versa. We can't have a good environment without a strong economy that is a, uh, is a sustainable economy as well. That is, that is a big change, I, I must say, at least That's in, right. in terms of perception across America. People really thought it was one or the other. And it's interesting how, you know, and I wonder sometimes when I, when I go to the grocery store and, and pick stuff up, a lot of the packages, the way they sell it is, you know, trying to appeal to environmental responsibility. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder how much of that, I mean, it's been, it's been denigrated as uh, greenwashing, right. Uh, right. But, but I wonder how much of that is real and, you know, just makes economic sense for the people who are trying to sell stuff in the grocery stores. That's right. Well, uh, you're absolutely right, Bert. There's definitely more than enough greenwashing out there. What my, uh, and, and it's unfortunate, what, what I will tell you is that there's also business people like our friend and E2 member Dana Hahn in New Orleans, for instance, who has owned and operated an in, uh, a restaurant, Cafe Carmo, in New Orleans for a decade or more. He's having a tough time staying afloat, so to speak, bad pun there, mm. because he keeps getting flooded out mm. uh, from... Uh, back-to-back hurricanes, et cetera. We also have members that are shifting to clean energy, not be, in part because they care about our environment and they want to save the planet, but just as importantly, because it's the cheapest power around. Um, but that, so, that is something new, the cheapest power yeah. around. I mean, I've, I've been interested in this stuff for quite a long time. I am old what can i tell you but uh, mm. they, they, they you know it used to be that oh that stuff is nice but it's so expensive wind power right. it's all you know extra stuff but i wonder about just in the last few years my sense is maybe i'm wrong that the dynamics have changed a little bit just in the last few years that have brought a new impetus to, to getting serious about addressing climate change and, and have changed the uh, economics of uh, clean energy. That's right. That's right. Well, look, the, the, the price of solar and wind has come down something like 90% over the past 20 years. 
and, and the technology has improved to the point where, again, it's typically the cheapest power available. Look, this this isn't uh, I'm, I'm sitting in Washington, D.C., is, as I mentioned, not too far from the White House where Jimmy Carter, as you remember, put solar panels oh, yes. uh, on the roof in the 70s. Yeah. Well, the, the stuff that we're talking about today is not those Jimmy Carter solar panels that that uh, that he put on the roof in the 70s. The, we are at the point now where we have the technology uh, and we have the innovation to really make a difference uh, in climate change and also bring cheaper energy more abundant energy, more nationally secure energy to the masses. But here's the thing. We, we've got to get Congress and uh-huh. we've got to get our lawmakers to facilitate this trans, trans, transition uh, because it's just too big for businesses to do on its own. Yeah, I, I did wonder about that. I mean, at various times in American history, there's needed to be like sometimes really significant right. government intervention to as it used to be said, to save capitalism from itself. And, That's right. uh, and I, you know, I, I have, I have photovoltaic panels on my roof. I'm glad I could afford it. They're still, they're not cheap for startup. They're not cheap. For startup, but after a time. So I wonder, you know, it, it, it seems to me there's an opportunity there for government to do something about this and to subsidize this stuff and to have a massive effort. Um, right. I don't see that. Well, happening. look, right, uh, as we speak, sitting in the Senate right now is something called the Budget Reconciliation Bill uh-huh. that includes the most uh, extensive and far-reaching climate and clean energy policies our country has ever known. Yeah. It would invest something like $550 billion into clean energy and climate investments including tax credits for clean energy. $550 billion is a lot of money. That's over 10 years. Uh, But so is $150 billion worth of damage every year to our economy that we're facing from climate change. Mm. But these investments, Bert, uh, would simply make clean energy, clean vehicles more available to the masses. Uh It would make solar and wind and batteries more available to more Americans through tax credits. It would make electric vehicles cheaper through rebates, through tax credits, but also through expanding uh, car charging stations across America uh, so we can get unshackled from $5 a gallon gasoline. And it would expand energy efficiency programs so that the cost for every consumer and businesses, business in America can save money on their, on their monthly electric bill. Um, Yes, solar and wind is cheaper. Yes, electric vehicles are are on the way. But we need to move faster, and we need to make sure all of these things are available to every community in every part of the country. Uh, and only something like the federal government can make that happen. So it seems, but boy, policy. There's, there's been a lot of resistance to having... Uh, what they call big government, even though clearly it's worked in the past. And there are those who would say, they tend to be on the right, that you're picking winners. What what about that? I mean, we've had the oil companies, the petroleum industry has been hugely powerful and remains very powerful. What about that uh, picking winners? And while we're on that, there are those skeptics who say, Oh, it's not really climate change. It's just 
it's just uh, it's just happening. Things are changing. Uh, you know, these are acts of God. Right, right. Well, uh, first of all, if you don't think that climate change is happening, you haven't been alive in the past 10 to 20 years. Um, uh, you know, in the past five years, we've had three of the most expensive wildfires our country has ever known. We've had five of the most costly hurricanes we've ever known. We had the most expensive winter freeze in Texas, by God, oh, that's right. Uh, right. last year, costing nearly $200 billion in property damage. And we had the worst, most expensive thunderstorm, uh, the derecho storm in, in Iowa two years ago that cost $7.5 billion in crop losses. So, look, I, I, I don't care if you like polar bears. I don't care if you hmm. believe in science. I don't care if you drive a Prius or a pickup truck. The fact of the matter is our economy is getting hammered by climate change and the taxpayers, every taxpayer, Republican, Democrat, independent or other, are paying for it. We sure are. And we got to do something about it. We, We have to do something about it. Oftentimes we don't. It's so much easier and more familiar to just sweep problems under the rug, especially if they're challenging. Bert Cohen right. here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today, if you just tuned in, is Bob Keefe, former journalist who's uh, head of something called the E2. Uh, and uh, it's um, he's got a new book out, Climatonomics, uh, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. And power in Washington. It doesn't change easily. has a little <laughs> bit to do with money. Yeah. Uh, The members of Congress, certainly, no question about it, you're right, they give more weight to the business community than to other interest groups. You know, they they hear from other interest groups and like, yeah, okay, I heard from you. Uh, But the power of the petroleum industry, I mean, they're making tremendous profits these days out there, the the price of uh, gasoline and diesel, especially diesel. My sense is their political influence is tremendously outsized and has been for a long time they are the gorillas in the room that you know people don't want to talk about they're locked in total denial it seems to me about climate change i mean i i maybe there's there's making little bits of change here and there i don't know is it not a bit of naivete to believe that they the petroleum industry is less politically powerful today uh, there's there's no doubt that the petroleum industry and the fossil fuel industry generally, uh, including coal, et cetera, natural gas, uh, is tremendously powerful in Washington and, frankly, in state houses across the country as well. Yes, that's true. Uh, but, Bert, I would submit that that, too, is beginning to change. And the reason I say that is because I think about what happened almost exactly one year ago today. Oh. On May 26, actually, uh, and on May 26 in 2021, as I outlined in the book in my book, Climate Nomics, uh, there were concurrently shareholder meetings at Exxon Mobil and at Chevron, and at the same time, a court in The Hague was reviewing a case involving Royal Dutch Shell, so mm-hmm. three of the biggest oil companies on the planet, um, and. It was a stunning same-day trifecta, if you will, in which the board of ExxonMobil um, elected several 
new directors that were nominated by an investor who basically said the company needed to do more to address climate change. At Chevron, the same exact thing happened. And in the, and in the Hague, uh, the court ruled that Royal Dutch Shell was breaching its corporate obligations to reduce carbon emissions. Since then, those companies have taken itty bitty baby steps toward the right direction, mm-hmm. but they're big steps compared to where those companies were a decade or so ago. It's not fast enough. We need to do more, but uh, it, it is a start. But here's, here, here's the other thing that I'd, I'd like to mention, if you'll allow me. Oh, please. Uh, yes. when, it comes, when it comes to the power of the purse string, the power of the pocketbook, if you will, in Congress and beyond. There's a dynamic that's changed here, Bert. The economic costs of climate change are no longer something that's isolated to the Arctic or to faraway Pacific islands. It's happening and it's hammering the economies in places like as we mentioned, Iowa and Texas and North Carolina and New Hampshire uh, and every other part of, of our country. And at the same time, the other side of this coin, right, the growth and the uh, expansion of clean energy and the jobs and investments that, are, that come with it are also happening all over the country. Look at where all of the electric vehicle makers are now building their plants. It's not necessarily in Detroit, it's in Kentucky and Tennessee and Texas, uh, look at look at where clean energy is taking off. Yes, it's California, but Texas is the number one wind state. North Carolina is the number three solar state in the country now. Oh. So there comes a point where the, our elected officials have to recognize that this isn't happening in some faraway land. It's happening in their backyards, and they ought to take action for it. And that, you know, politicians, uh, there's this uh, old story about uh, A. Philip Randolph, who was uh, with the uh, uh, Pullman Porters Union back in the 30s and talked to uh, President Franklin Roosevelt about uh, integration and, and, you know, paying people fairly. And right. supposedly the president said, I'm with you. I support you. Now go out there and make me do it. And that, right. that's true. The politicians... I don't tend to be a very brave lot, shall we say. You know, right. <laughs> yeah, but I, I wonder if the people are starting to get there. And what one thing I do wonder about is, you know, with the with the price of gasoline uh, and and diesel in particular, President Biden is trying to make more uh, petroleum available. And maybe right. I've even heard rumors about uh, uh, allowing for more oil exploration. You know, right. he's, he's got to walk a fine line politically. But what what about that? I mean, that's kind of retrograde. Uh, I and we think it's a bad idea. Yeah. I mean, uh, look, we uh, again, we have the technology now to shift from and to unshackle ourselves from the energy source we've had for our vehicles for for way too long now uh i'll give you an example i was just with a good friend of mine in northern virginia over the weekend he's got a mini cooper electric mini cooper fun uh we drove out to the shenandoah valley up to the mountains and back it was about 120 miles i think nice passed a lot of gas stations along the way never used a drop of gasoline um so uh, the the technology is there, but again, we need the policy from Washington to 
to make those types of innovations, those money-saving innovations, those pocketbook-saving innovations more available to more people in America. Uh, and we've got to pass the policy to do that. Yeah, it's it, it's not uh, easy to do, for sure. People do remain skeptical, and, and uh, change is not something that people generally welcome real quickly. It takes a long right. time to happen and to filter through. Now, Sometimes. Sometimes. Now, yeah. I, I, I would ahead. submit to you this, Bert, yeah. if I could. Yeah, please. And I'm sorry for, for no, no, taking ahead. so much of your airspace. <laughs> no, please. But as, as you mentioned, I spent a, about 20 years as a journalist. And I remember sitting in a room with Steve Jobs uh-huh. and him telling us that someday you're going to have a thousand songs in your pocket. You remember that? <laughs> and someday you're going to be able to take photos with your cell phone. And we all sat around as journalists and said, sure, whatever. Uh-huh. I heard Jeff Bezos tell me that someday Amazon's not just going to be about books. You're going to be able to buy anything you can buy at a, at a store on Amazon. And we rolled our eyes and said, sure. I sat in with the Google guys who told me someday you'll be able to find anything ever produced digitally anything. on the World Wide Web with the, with the tap of a few fingers. I know. Look what's happened in just the past 10 or 15 years when it comes to that kind of technology. There's no reason why we can't do that with clean energy now and clean vehicles. No, it's true. But I, I, I do wonder if, uh, you know, get it, getting to the point where the the average people a, a tipping point of enough right. of american voters realize this and get this and aren't climate deniers cuz there's still as you know a lot of climate change deniers right. out there uh, you know are we getting there cuz just based on profit alone which is how businesses operate right. uh it may not be enough and i wonder if voters and consumers are how close they are to realizing that enough of them, shall we say, a tipping point, to realizing that climate change really is killing our economy. I, I remain skeptical that enough people are there. Convince me, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if enough people aren't there, Bert, what I would say is that unfortunately and regrettably, We've put off this problem so long yeah, that more yes. people are going to understand it. Yeah. Last year, last year, one in four Americans lived in a county that uh, was impacted by severe climate change, whether it's wow. uh, flooding or storm. That's according to the Washington Post, whether it's flooding or storms uh, or s- severe extreme heat. Look what happened in Portland, Oregon last summer, where the temperatures soared to something like 115 degrees. We have some business people and members there who had to shut down their factories, Bert, because they simply weren't built to manage that kind of heat. They couldn't, they couldn't do it. Their, their air, air conditioning systems, if they had them, really? couldn't manage that. That's an impact. That's an economic impact. Well, people are perhaps starting to realize that it may take a little while. And of course, you know, the environment and, and uh, climate change is not just about global warming, but that is obviously a huge part of it. But there's also, you know, what's going on with the oceans, for example. That's right. Uh, and, and I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and uh, a throwaway culture was celebrated. Yay, we can just toss things out. Don't even think about it. Forget glass right. bottles, plastic bottles, just throw them away. 
the front end of consumer products did not include the back end, the trash, the waste, the pollution now encircling our oceans, those huge uh, uh, islands of plastic. Might we really be near a point at which the cost of continued damage from environmental inaction might be starting to outweigh the costs of policies to shift America to a cleaner economy? Well, look, we, we certainly cannot wait any longer. We've been putting this off for yeah. too long, yeah. over and over and over, and we're paying for the consequences for it right now, whether it's with oceans that have almost as much plastic as they have fish in them, yeah. or uh, uh, in the types of climate disasters that we're seeing that's a result of the carbon emissions that we've pumped into our, our atmosphere for uh, yeah. nearly a century now. Yeah. Right, right. Well, I hope we we are starting to get it, and uh, you know, not everybody can see the uh, the coral, you know, down in uh, the uh, warmer parts of the world bleaching out, uh, and you know, that's that's serious stuff. It does affect that's right. everything. And I, I, well, I, and you you bring up a good point about uh, about how we used to get rid of our our waste, Bert, and we you, frankly we threw it out the car window when yeah. we were driving down the the highway in the 70s i remember that myself yes, and yes. think about think about those uh the what, what i always think about is those pull top cans uh, yes like soda cans you just pull those things off and you throw them on the ground where okay. you are used to but look how quickly relatively quickly uh, true. those got we got rid of those look at some of the other um environmental improvements that that we've made uh in recent years so when when I think about can we transition to a cleaner economy, can we transition to a cleaner uh, cleaner energy quickly enough, I think of those things too. And in, in my lifetime and in your lifetime, we've made some strides. We're not throwing our garbage out the window. There's a start. There's there's a, a baby step right there, right? Yeah. And, and <laughs> you know, the, the markets aren't always there for recycling, but – People are trying. I mean, pretty much everybody's right. recycling. It's not just, you know, the, the long-haired hippies who, who were recycling, but it's it's pretty much everybody. And it, Absolutely. We can't necessarily control the demand for recycled goods. Well, what what can, you know, like, I don't know, is China, is didn't they used to buy stuff from us? I may not be have the right That's country right. here. But w w can the government be a factor in in uh, in helping us uh, reduce reuse and recycle for example uh, absolutely and and the best way to do that is not to use it to begin with yes so if if we can shift away from plastics if we can shift away from uh, single use items that we just throw <sighs> in the trash after uh, after we eat lunch or, or what have you uh, that's that's where the real difference is, not necessarily in recycling, because we know now that something like 90 percent of recycled recyclable products are not recycled. Yeah. We have to we have to nip it in the bud before it gets to us. Yeah. And that's where policies come into play again. Yeah, it, it's hard to do. We do like our convenience in America. That's Lord right. knows, I, you know, I do myself for sure. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive, and we're talking about a crucial aspect. I mean, you can't have democracy or much, you know, 
of an economy, really, if we just uh, destroy the planet. And our guest today is uh, Bob Keefe, who has a new book out, Climate Nomics, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. We measure our, the strength of the American economy by something called gross domestic product. I wonder if perhaps having that as a standard maybe exacerbates the problem. There's obviously been a lot of discussion about that in recent years, and is producing more necessarily producing better? I think the answer is no. I think we ought to be producing better. That's always worked in the past. And <laughs> <laughs> every now and then we learn from history. Rarely, but every now and then. Uh, That's right. I, I often quote H.L. Mencken, who uh, has brilliant things to say. He, he said, for every complex problem, there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. Mm. It's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I bring that up because, as you've probably seen among millions American, of Americans, especially younger people, they, they believe, oh, it's just capitalism. Capitalism is bad. Right. we got to get rid of capitalism. That's the source of all injustice and environmental degradation. Just do away with capitalism. We like simple right. solutions. They're so much easier than actual, more complicated remedies. You, uh, you directly challenge this reductivist view. You assert that capitalism itself has become an ally. How is climate action turning out to be an economic boon for early adopters in this clean energy industry? How has capitalism itself become an ally? Well, it's become a, an, an ally in many ways, I think, because of the simple cost-benefit analysis of doing business in, in the world today. So one of, one of the many reasons that clean energy has taken off in places that may seem unexpected, places like North Carolina, places like Texas, places like the Midwest, coal country, uh, is in part, Bert, because uh, uh, of demand from businesses relocating to those areas. If you talk to Amazon these days, if you talk to Facebook or Google or Salesforce and any of the major tech companies right now, that use tremendous amounts of electricity for to run their data centers. The things, the things that uh, uh, we use in our our everyday lives. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. They're they're moving to places where they can get a hundred percent clean energy. Amazon, Google, etc. Will not build a, fa a a data center now or an office that they can't get a hundred percent renewable energy for. Uh, and as a result, that is challenging and pushing the uh, policymakers and the politicians in some of these states to embrace cleaner energy because they want the jobs, they want the investments that come with those companies. So that's one way that, that, uh, that companies and corporate America are driving this uh, transition to cleaner energy. Yeah, let's hope so. We need to have government and uh, business working together. It's great when, That's they, right. when they do that. You know, and individual action is one thing. I mean, we all, well, most people I know try to recycle and use less. And uh, we all hate getting styrofoam coffee cups, one-use coffee cups that last, oh, a couple hundred years. Uh, right, right. <laughs> 
or 20 minutes for your coffee. Oh, God, I know. And they last for... We also, you know, people have been buying electric cars. That's an individual action. We're putting our own rooftop photovoltaic arrays. That helps. Right. This is... Electric cars ain't cheap, although some of them are, are starting to That's get right. that way. Individuals can only make so much impact on truly systemic challenges. And without question, the, perhaps the most significant and effective tools for cutting carbon emissions have to come from the federal government. The logic is there, but the political will. I mean, to build back better. Right. has so much potential to create new jobs, great new jobs, and take a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. As you say, clean energy, it, it's been kind of stalled, and that's frustrating as heck. Clean energy growth, you say, will continue to change the American workforce as pending legislation right. could create even more economic opportunities, the likes of which we haven't seen in a generation. That's right. But never mind the strength of the argument, you know, <laughs> the power of the oil lobby and the Koch brothers and others have, have done its work. Is it realistic in this charged political environment to think that the best argument will win the day? Sorry to be skeptical, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there, uh, there's a chapter in the book, my book, Climaconomics, uh, Bert, that talks about a time when America's economy was on the verge of the biggest transition in history. Progressives uh, wanted to find new ways to create jobs, to make the nation more competitive uh, in a growing international marketplace and expand opportunities for more Americans uh, all across the country. Uh, they, they were proposing nothing less than upending the very foundation of our country's economy at the time. That time, Bert, was in 1790, uh, when our nation's first Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, wrote something called uh, a report on the subject of manufacturers. Now, at the time, America was almost 100 percent an agrarian economy. Folks like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and others uh, were staunch and started allies and supporters of a 100% agrarian economy. Alexander Hamilton said, look, if we're going to survive in this world ahead, we need to shift toward more manufacturing. That'll create jobs in places that we don't have them. It'll keep us competitive with Britain and other countries. Uh, uh, and it was a humongous transformation. But look what happened after that. America became a manufacturing country. Yes. And and it transformed not just our country, but it transformed the world. Um, back then, you could equate the agrarian economy of the United States to maybe the petroleum or the fossil fuel industry of the United States. Yes, it was a humongous transition, but uh, fortunately, we had leadership in Washington mm. that saw that uh, we had to uh, transition to survive and to lead the world. We're at that point right now when it comes to clean energy. We're at that point right now when it comes to clean vehicles. And we're at that point right now when it comes to the economic cost of climate change as well. We need that leadership in Washington. Whew. Yeah, well, we do what we can. But my yeah. goodness, there's some 
people on on the other side, the the climate deniers, uh, people like Josh Hawley, who are all wrapped up in this bizarre idea of masculinity of you know white men running everything yeah. and and anything other than that is oh too effeminate whatever and the strength of the culture wars that's familiar to people they people that's like right. familiarity it's 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 quite a challenge so how it does does e2 get involved in in political races i mean you probably can't really do that but what what, what no. are, you, are you guys doing to help uh, bring about that needed change well we definitely don't get involved with political races right. and we are uh we're we're, we're a uh, non-partisan non-profit organization and uh frankly we support uh anybody who supports policies that are good for both our economy and our environment uh -huh. what we do bert is we put our business people to work frankly uh -huh. our eleven thousand plus members uh they bring the economic case they bring their business stories uh, to the forefront and talking and educating lawmakers on either side of the aisle. Um, and when, uh, and you were in politics and, and I covered politics for a while and I know that there's few things that politicians like more than talking about creating jobs, driving economic growth and kissing babies Absolutely. or maybe used to be kissing yeah. babies. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. But that's, that's right. But, um, if, if we can bring business voices to, uh, into the conduit, if you will, of the discussion around smart environmental policies, around smart clean energy policies, that we've, we know can make a difference. And it is making a difference, and it should make a difference. Yes, it, it, it should, and it is, and uh, there's, there's some degree of hope there. I think uh, pe people are getting it. And as I remember, you know, during it was when the there was a noticeable, you could really almost pinpoint the change in our uh, Vietnam policy when the business community, but there was a group called Business Leaders right. Against the War. Right. That made a difference. All of a sudden, That's right. they, they perked up and like, oh, Okay, <laughs> we need to do something That's different, right. and I think this That's is right. happening now. Yeah, I mean, it's... well, you can consider E two business leaders against climate change <laughs> and business leaders for uh, saving the planet. Action. Yeah. That's right. Business That's leaders right. for saving. Them. I, I'm fine with that. And you know, it, it kills me when I see people, uh, Facebook and elsewhere, saying, "Oh, it's just capitalism." No, it's not capitalism per se. You know, it's it's blind greed, selfish greed. You know, and it, it's capitalism per se isn't necessarily bad. Greed is bad. I think greed is bad. That's right. But <laughs> capitalism is, right. isn't necessary. I mean, small businesses. You know. Uh, I don't have to convince you you're there. <laughs> well, well, it's 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 hard to, uh, Bert. It's hard to make a living and operate a company when your company's either underwater or on fire, uh, and it's <laughs> and it's hard to survive uh, our economy when uh, it's taking a hundred and fifty billion dollar hit from climate change every year. So business people understand that. Yes, we need to do something about this from an environmental standpoint, but we also need to do something about it from an, an economic standpoint. And business people are people. They have families. That's right. They have children, grandchildren. That's a factor. It is, you know. You're not, it sure is. Not just uh, automatons. And, you know, there are people like, 
Greta Thunberg or Thunberg, I guess yeah. it's Thunberg. Thunberg, she, yeah. She's, yeah. She's got her approach. She's what, 16 years old now. It's certainly a positive factor, you know, saying, hey, you people, you got to do something about this. Our young That's generation. Right. But by, by itself, without making it attractive for politicians, it's not enough. I wonder if climate change can, it, it's being transformed into an economic issue. And I wonder if that might be enough meaningful weight to, at this point, at this late date, to help save the planet. Well, that, that's the point of my book, Bert, and, and uh, the answer is, I think, yes. Uh, we've got to. We, we've got to. I, I, I really, I like to be optimistic. I mean, good for Greta Thunberg, and we need all different approaches from all different Absolutely. angles. Absolutely. You know, and, and uh, it, it, uh, it, it, all of them can be, can be useful. Um, you know, and at this point, obviously, clean energy and climate change are folded into the culture war, which I think is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger as it goes along. That's right. Uh, especially as we head to 2024. It, it's, do you think it's, is clean energy and climate change starting at last to become less partisan and reactively divisive? Are we starting to have serious lasting impact on the so-called conservative mind, the mindset that denies climate change and denigrates any argument for investing in corrective measures? Are we starting to see that? It's been a long time coming. Uphill, <laughs> uphill battle. That's right. Well, I, I think it depends on which member of which party you're talking to, of course. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, again, as these problems, as these issues, as these disasters start to hit um, every state in our country, as these clean energy jobs start to grow in every state in our country, mm. um, we reasonable people will come to the realization that there really isn't anything political about climate change. And there really isn't anything political about creating good paying jobs in mm. clean energy. There should not be. Uh, and what I like to say is when, when you look at the numbers where these clean energy jobs are being created, 3 million jobs around the country right now, mm when you look at them and as i mentioned is uh, they're almost evenly split between republican and democratic districts and so what i like to say is look these are not blue state jobs these are not red state right. jobs these are red white and blue jobs uh mm. and they're jobs available across the spectrum from uh from phd and and master's degree engineers to blue collar union workers that are uh, building electric vehicles or uh, installing new high-efficiency HVAC heating and air conditioning systems mm -hmm. or building the Energy Star appliances that uh, use half as much energy as they did 10 years ago yeah. in factories in the Midwest. Um, I, I do wonder if, I mean, there's, not to oversimplify, but you know the the so-called heartland, the areas of uh, low density population, right. tend to be more uh, uh, conservative, and yet 
if I'm hearing you right, there are jobs being generated in those parts of the country. And I wonder if the politicians are, have the chutzpah, shall we say, uh, are brave enough to start talking about that, that, hey, we're bringing jobs there, environmental jobs there. Uh, and, and that, of course, does affect uh, uh, the politics of it and the policy of it. Uh, are people in these areas starting to see? I mean, they've been dying for jobs for a long right. time. They've been really hurting for jobs. What's, what's well, your I'll, Go ahead. I'll, I'll tell you a story about a visit I made uh, probably five or six years ago to the state of Iowa, Bert. Uh-huh. Um, and I went in there with a group of uh, Iowa business people to talk to then Governor Terry Branstad. Mm-hmm. Terry Branstad, uh, I believe, is the longest serving Republican governor in our nation's history. He also was Donald Trump's ambassador to China. And I distinctly remember Bert walking in to talk to the governor. And the first thing he said to me is, Bob, damn it, don't you come in here and talk to me about the EPA or environmental stuff or what's happening in Washington. I I hate those people. I don't want anything to do with them. I'm not going to talk to you about environmental issues and and, and that sort of thing. And I was like, well, Governor, actually, I just want to talk to you about clean energy with some of these business people. And his whole de- demeanor changed, his whole face changed. And he said, you know what, Bob, I'll tell you something. And, and we went to talk about uh, how Iowa at the time was the leading state in the country. It's still number two for wind energy in America. Huh. Why is that? Because Governor Branstad actually passed the first uh, renewable energy portfolio standard of any state back in the uh, late uh, uh, in the early 80s, I believe. Mm. And by the way, Governor uh, Senator Chuck Grassley mm. from Iowa mm. considers himself and, and touts himself as "quote unquote" the godfather of wind energy in America. Well, whoa, th- that's not that's not an environmental tree hugger thing. That's <laughs> That, these are two staunch Republicans who realize the importance of clean energy to their states uh, and the jobs that, that it's created and the economic growth that it's created. Yeah. That's what more politicians need to realize on both sides of the aisle, by the way, in every state in America. Yeah, and certainly no one could ever confuse Chuck Grassley with being a tree hugger. It just... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Having a lot of wind, maybe so. <laughs> but That's right. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about a key aspect of keeping democracy alive by keeping the planet alive. Our guest today is uh, Bob Keefe. He's got a new book out, Climate Nomics, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. We're talking about the important role of the business community in making uh, clean energy and uh, uh, saving the planet. And I, I wonder, one never knows exactly what issues are going to pull people out of their houses into the voting booths. For example, I, I happen to be pro-choice, and, and when I was in the state senate, it was really, really hard, virtually impossible to reach young women of childbearing age. They just didn't believe it. It didn't I don't know. I don't know if now they'll bring it out. Does does polling suggest that it's starting to move people? That the global warming is starting to really move people and actually affect how they will vote. Hasn't been there in the past. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And uh, and if you look at the last presidential election we had in this country, Bert, 
there's never been a presidential election like the past one where yeah. climate change became such an issue. Um, it started with um, Governor Inslee, uh, candidate, then candidate Inslee from yes. Washington State. Uh, but every single candidate made climate change, addressing climate change, a significant part of the platform. And, and I would suggest that President Biden uh, has um, uh, done more to raise awareness and to raise the importance of climate change as an economic issue than anybody in our country's history. When, when you, you heard him at the State of the Union and elsewhere when he says, when I think of climate change, I think of jobs. Uh, and he's yeah. thinking of it the right way. Yes. Uh, and that was certainly a message that resonated with voters. Um, mm. uh, and, and frankly, with, with voters on both sides of the aisle. But when you, get to, when you talk about polling, poll after poll after poll after poll, Bert, has shown that uh, Americans from either side of the aisle want uh, our leaders in Washington and our leaders in state houses to do more on uh, addressing climate change because these costs are, are killing our economy and uh, because the opportunities that come with climate action are just are, are, are just unprecedented. So the polling definitely bears it out. What we need is folks to, as you mentioned, realize that um, uh, going forward. Well, things do not move as quickly as we'd like, but they, they do move. And that's right. They, one of the things about capital is you got to have access to capital and uh, the powers that be, you know, they're, they're fine with we, the fact, you know, as much of a plutocracy as we have now, the big boys have access to capital. But what right. used to be considered the backbone of the economy, the little guy, are, where do they stand in terms of getting access to capital now? Are they at a disadvantage when it comes to tooling up for cleaner, greener policies? Absolutely, and I'm and I'm really grateful that you brought that up, Bert. Um, yeah, I, I've been talking glowingly about uh, clean energy uh, with you for for some time now. Yes, but let me tell you this: clean energy has a problem. It has a diversity issue, uh, among other things. Uh, our, our organization and others looked took a real close look at clean energy job growth around the country a while ago and where that was going, and overwhelmingly. Clean energy jobs are going to, to white men mm-hmm. uh, and typically in uh, major cities around America. Uh, women, as we know, represent like about almost 50% of the workforce. They represent something like 20% of the workforce uh, in clean energy. Uh, blacks and African Americans uh, uh, represent about 12% of the overall workforce, mm-hmm. only 8% of clean energy. And these are the, the fastest growing jobs in the country right now. Fortunately, the policies that have been uh, put forward by the Biden administration, and fortunately, the proposals contained in the budget reconciliation bill right now, that $550 billion mm-hmm. over 10 years spending, would, uh, uh, would focus, uh, uh, very much focus on making sure that this money goes into communities of color mm. into uh, small businesses that are run by people of color and is uh, designed to 
help make sure that these economic benefits extend to all Americans, not just, frankly, rich white folks that, mm-hmm. that drive Teslas and have solar on their houses. Mm-hmm. And we need to do that. So hopefully that's that's I'm I'm glad to hear that that's part of the uh, the budget uh, reconciliation right. program, and fairly hardcore environmentalists have been dismissive of the Paris Climate Accords of 2015. Uh, how how significant are they really? I don't know if there's enough time on this. And how does the U.S. compare with other signatories? Is that was that a, a decent step forward? And how does that fit in with with your uh, focus? So I was in Paris during during that, and I can tell you absolutely it, it is a major step forward when you get 197 countries to agree on anything, uh, much much less the most existential problem, issue that, that our planet is facing right now. So yes, it is definitely a step in the right direction. America is right if it's going to be a world leader to, to be in that agreement, uh, but now we need to to make sure we live up to the the standards that our country and every other country uh, agreed to. Well, there's nothing like adversity to spur action forward, really. And this, <laughs> That's right. We're there now. A fascinating discussion, and it's important to to recognize, uh, you know, where real change can be made. What's what's realistic? What can actually bring change? The book is called Climate Nomics: Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle. To save our planet, its author is uh, has been our guest Bob Keefe. Thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, gosh, I always like to end on a note of optimism. Sometimes it happens. Thank you, <laughs> Bert. Thank you so much. 